giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen. And I am also your host, Chad Pytel. And with us today is Bruce Daisley, Vice President of EMEA at a little company called Twitter. Bruce, thanks for joining us today. Hello there. Thank you for having me. So to kick off, I'd love to learn about your role. What does uh, the vice president of EMEA Twitter do? Well, we've got immensely talented people running all of the countries across Europe and across the Middle East. So my job really is to to not really step on their toes too much. So I work with the the, the country leaders in France, in Spain, in Germany, and and my job really is just to to ensure that they feel supported in their job running those countries and allow them to do the best possible job for Twitter, really. I think the next logical question is, what do those individual country leaders do for Twitter or at Twitter? Yeah, so Twitter has a few different things that we focus on in each of those countries. So we think about our reputation. We think about advertising business. You know, right now, as we're recording this, there was recently an election in Spain. And so what the country leader in, in Spain might be telling me is, look, you know, these are the things that are concerns in Spain. These are the things that are in the media. We need to respond to this. And you can imagine it's sort of rapidly evolving. Twitter finds itself in the news every day, either via other people's tweets or as an entity in its own right. And so our job really is just to try and ensure that the country leaders feel supported and really can help represent the Twitter platform in those countries in the best way possible. Interesting. So it's a combination of sales, but also a lot of public relations, it sounds like. Yeah, very much so. And and you can imagine, you know, there's always big reasons why people might be interested in something they've seen on Twitter. and, And that might be because it's inspirational or because they feel alarmed by it. And the way that one of my colleagues described it is she said that when you have half a billion tweets every day, it means that there's 500 one in a million issues that happen every day. Does every country in Europe and in your area have an individual person who's in in charge of it or do people span multiple countries? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it depends. So uh, the big countries do. The other countries we cover, but we don't necessarily have a person mm-hmm. in every country. So it, mm-hmm. it, it varies, really. I'm curious. So there there are 44 countries in Europe. Does that mean you have 44 people who <laughs> report no, to you? So it's, it's fewer than that. <laughs> yeah. It's big countries. But we, we have representation in all of, in all of those territories. But yeah. sometimes there's someone spanning multiple places. So how many people do you work with on your team then? Yeah, I mean, across the whole of Europe, there's 500 people and, you know, it's sort of high single digit direct reports reporting into me. So. Do you interact with the US team at all or are you mostly focused on your region? Yeah, very much so. So, you know, I interact with probably our two big centers in the US, San Francisco, inevitably our headquarters, and increasingly New York. So there's a lot of interactions with those teams. Normally when those teams wake up, we sort of huddle and and we, we spend times, certainly three or four days a week, really just discussing various parts of the business. How can we build audience in in different territories? How can we build our revenue? How can we market better? So yeah, in each market, we have specific needs and we we huddle with the the US several times a week to, to discuss it, really. It seems like, you know, in the past year or so, there's been 
a lot of pressure on Twitter in the U.S. that I, I wonder if spills over into your regions, specifically things around, you know, Donald Trump's presence on Twitter and how he uses it. And a lot of folks trying to get at Jack Dorsey and ask him about who gets banned from Twitter and who doesn't and like, what's the reasoning behind that? And is that something that you see in your regions? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think the critical thing there is that the conclusion that we've reached is that when decisions are made behind closed doors with with no transparency, the lack of information means that often uncertainty and speculation and conjecture fills the void. So what Jack's been doing, and you'll you'll have noticed him doing a lot of media in the last 12 months, what Jack's been doing is is getting out there and telling the story. And, And it's fair to say that by the very fact you're out there talking doesn't necessarily mean that you convince everyone. But our feeling was very resolutely that the more we get out and we tell our side of things, at least people will understand the way that we reach decisions. And so more often than not, we're trying to do working out in public. You know, we'll often explain when we don't have the answer on things, but the direction we're traveling in. And I think our intention really is that recognizing that these are immensely complex issues that a lot of people have got strong opinions on. And our feeling was, can we at least try to articulate where we come from and and what our positions are? So you've seen that. We have exactly the same, you you know, for the US and, and for Donald Trump, read the Catalonian situation in Spain. You know, all of these things are immensely fraught. And I, I think our intention really is to at least try and to explain the decisions we make. Our feeling is very resolutely that we want to improve the quality of conversation. We want to serve the public conversation. We want to make sure that that Twitter is a healthy and rewarding place for people to come and interact. You know, so many people love the fact that Twitter inspires them, makes them laugh, connects them every day. And we want to make sure that that is enhanced by the, the quality of dialogue on the platform, really. Great. That definitely seems like the right direction. Do you personally feel empowered at Twitter to to be a part of those conversations or to do active problem solving and things like that? Yeah, very much. I mean, for a business like Twitter, every tweet is composed and consumed locally, right? You know, the, the, albeit that we might be a global company. But if you're a Twitter user in France, you're sending a tweet and your context is, I'm sending this in France and, I'm, and people, my audience are reading it in France. And so to some extent, the international aspect, while it might be a, a relevant context for the overall business, it actually, it's a sidestep. So, you know, the critical thing for us is the, the people that we've got on the ground are very important for us understanding the nuance of how messages are received. The people in France are the very best people to determine how something has been experienced in France. Do uh, different countries have different regulations for... Yeah, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'm, I'm really curious. Yeah, uh, like, has I mean, GDPR affected anything the way you yeah, operate? Yes, so GDPR has strongly affected things. And that's the, for the people who maybe aren't familiar with it, that's the, the rule about privacy and about your ability to elect what data is kept on you and, and served on you. So, yeah, that has a bearing. I think in addition... Different laws have different countries. You know, you, you may or not be aware that it's against the law in some countries to insult the monarch. It's against mm. the law in some countries to insult the leader. 
And so obviously we always abide by the laws in every country. And so that's that's just a, a different nuance. And that's why it's so important to have people on the ground wherever we can, because a lot of us might think, okay, well, it's my right to say my opinions of the leader. But in some countries, that's both culturally insensitive and, and actually legally prohibited. So just this demonstration, really, that, that every tweet is consumed and created locally. So you were at Google before running YouTube in the UK, right? I was, that's right. What brought you to Twitter? What, what excited you and what made you come to Twitter in the first place? I worked at YouTube for about four and a half years. I was very fortunate to work on YouTube there. And, you know, I, I joined just shortly after they'd bought YouTube and I put my hand up and, and volunteered to work on it. And in fact, I was very fortunate to work on just, you know, a platform I adore and a platform that just makes me laugh every day and inspires me and amuses me every day. So so I, I loved working on, on YouTube. Basically, I spent a lot of time advocating for, for YouTube while I was there, sort of going out and sort of talking up YouTube and Twitter saw one of my presentations that I did. They got in touch with me and said, look, you know, would you ever consider working here? And uh, I, I adore Twitter. It makes me laugh every day. It sort of inspires me. I get my news, I get my humor, I get my entertainment from Twitter. And so I was thrilled to take the opportunity, really. Yeah, you seem like a really good advocate to have. You do a lot of speaking. You have a very popular podcast. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about Eat, yeah. Sleep, Work, Repeat? So I do a podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. In, in times, it's been sort of top 10 business podcasts in the US. It's been number one business podcast in the UK. So it started because I was fascinated with workplace culture and, and largely because I'd seen incredible workplace culture at Twitter. It's, you know, we'd been really energized, motivated. It'd been incredibly creative. And then I witnessed really the the affliction that affects by some accounts half of all office workers which was i was seeing burnout in the people around me i was seeing that but that my colleagues were looking dead-eyed exhausted tired and i was just fascinated whether i could in any way be helpful in trying to resolve that could i try and get people away from their burnout could i get people feeling re-energized and and i started through this podcast i started trying to explore the science of these things and what astonished me was there was no shortage of evidence about the science of better working there was no shortage of psychology there was pointers from neuroscience there was no shortage of evidence about what we should be doing to improve work and yet none of that evidence was being shared with people in jobs so you know the first time i found out the science of open plan offices open offices i was astonished it was like okay so open plan offices seem to be making us more estranged from each other they increase the volume of emails they make people feel overwhelmed with the demands upon them it's like oh wow it's not just me feeling this so i was just really struck by the evidence against it but it just astonished me that none of that evidence was ever reaching people who had jobs in open plan offices and so the, the podcast i mean i've done 80 odd episodes now but the podcast became my obsession with seeking out the truth on those things and sometimes really just trying to get to the bottom of different phenomena i i ended up chatting to the world's uh, most successful architect, a guy called Bianca Ingalls. I ended up chatting to people like Adam Grant, who's probably the world's leading workplace expert. 
people like Dan Pink, who has, has contributed a fantastic amount in terms of workplace motivation. People like Patty McCord, who helped write the Netflix culture document, which, while I personally strongly disagree with, you know, has, has been <laughs> a really significant contribution to the way that workplace culture has been perceived. So, look, you know, I've been thrilled through almost 100 episodes to chat to so, such incredible luminaries in the world of work. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about today's sponsor, Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty, and everything else that you're investing into what you're building. Pricing Wire has helped more than 1,000 software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what you're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, Pricing Wire delivers easy to understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or regrets and prevent missing time sensitive revenue opportunities, Pricing Wire can help. So just go to pricingwire.com and you can book a strategy session today. Whether you need to organize your value into offerings, quantify and message your value, select the right pricing metrics, set and change prices, or even decide if usage-based pricing is best for you, PricingWire will help you achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence. Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. I'm curious, what about the Netflix (laughs) uh, thing that you strongly disagree with? So the Netflix culture document is, for anyone who's not seen it, is a very candid take on the way that they think that their culture should be. And and I think normally with cultural documents, culture documents, they're often a series of saccharine quotes that any organization could profess to abide by. You know, they're they're often sort of quite tangy adjectives or adverbs that, that anyone could subscribe to. We're going to be energized, positive, forward-looking you know they 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 actually don't mean anything and the danger of things like that is unless someone expressing the opposite is a reasonable strategy then they don't actually represent choices you know they they we're going to be forward-looking and and welcoming like no one would say we're going to be backwards-looking and unwelcoming and so consequently (laughs) it's not a helpful position netflix culture document on the other hand they say that overnight when they published the document their candidates halved and they found that people were withdrawing themselves from applications and it's because there are things in the 132 slides deck that they publish the things where it says if you going back to our your old term card if if you achieve a a for effort at the end of the semester if you achieve an, an a for effort but a b for performance we're going to pay for you to leave the company and so I don't think many of us would welcome working in an organization like that where we're effectively we're, we're paid to leave an organization. Right. Were the things in that document true, though? Yes, very much so. Very much so. You know, that, for mm-hmm. example, people who work in Netflix tell me that there's something called the keeper test. And the keeper test is this. Right. And this, this operates on a, a week-to-week basis in Netflix now. The keeper test is that your boss will be asked at the end of every quarter, if this person in my team resigned, would I fight to keep them? So if this person resigned, would I fight to keep them? And if the answer is no, then the boss has to articulate to their boss how they're going to fire you and when they're going to do it. And so, you know, I think we've all heard of 
elements where organizations have, have talked about trying to keep best talent but i don't think many organizations go out of their way to explain that they would happily fire workers on the basis of those things so yeah absolutely it's 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 very much something that they abide by if you look at the organization the way it works in some ways you know it's it's sort of like the hunger games of jobs it's right it's, people i know who've worked there say that you know it's not expected that you'll have a long tenure there that it's very routine that you go into work and they say oh jack's left dave's left paula's left you know people are very comfortable with that so i think the reason why the Netflix culture document is so stark in comparison to what we're used to is because it's routinely used to exit people from the business. Therefore, the consequence that maybe is very different is, is you might say, well, okay, that seems like it's quite a stark thing to do. Then The next thing, I guess, that comes from it is we then say, do we think that that environment would enable people to do their best work? And in fact, when you study workplace environments like that, what you tend to find is that workplace environments like that have an absence of what's called psychological safety. And psychological safety was really pioneered by a couple of of psychologists in the last couple of decades. It was first, it, the phrase was coined by a guy called William Kahn, and he he said that psychological safety was where we're given the benefit of the doubt by our bosses. So the benefit of the doubt is where we are, you know, we, we might have done something, it might have been mistaken, but our boss presumes that we were doing it for the, the best of intentions. In addition, the person who went on to do a lot of work in psychological safety was a woman called Amy Edmondson. And Amy Edmondson said that psychological safety is our ability to speak truth to power and our ability to say to our boss that we were unsure about the decision that our boss made. And so, so those, those are the two elements of psychological safety. But you can imagine if, the, if you're working in an environment where you never feel that you're more than a few weeks away from getting fired, the consequence of that is that it can very strongly affect the decisions that we make. And the way Amy Edmondson talks about it, she says that people find themselves in a situation where they manage the image they give off. They manage the impression they create in other people's minds. She said, for fear of appearing ignorant, we don't ask questions. For fear of appearing obstructive, we don't raise objections. And that really means that, you know, we're damaging the truthful impression we create in other colleagues' minds. The reason why that matters is because largely when it comes to us creating an impact from our work, the more candidly we speak about our opinions, the more likely we are to speak truth. If you're working on the new Sonic the Hedgehog film and everyone in the room with you says, his teeth look really <laughs> creepy, uh, if no one says that but everyone's thinking it, then unfortunately it's going to take the, the first trailer of that film being released for the collective audience to say, we really don't like the look of that. Now, if you're working in a psychologically safe environment, then hopefully someone in the room will go, guys, that's really creepy. And you avoid the pitfalls of people managing the impressions they give. So the evidence seems to suggest that the closer we can get to a psychologically safe environment, the more it elevates our workplace culture. And in theory, it's less of a stressful environment to work in where you can do your best work, right? Yeah, I'm not saying that we would be without stress. One of the places where right. psychological safety is very critically important 
is that all of us do pretend jobs, but in operating theatres and in air cabin crew teams, obviously psychological safety is literally a matter of life and death. And in fact, in both circumstances, they've had to create structures and frameworks which almost create guardrails to ensure that psychological safety exists. So in operating Mm -hmm. theatres, quite often they perform what is sometimes called a who is. So what they've recognised is if you've spoken to someone already, the likelihood of you chatting to that person again in a stressful situation goes up exponentially. So operating teams now, when they go into theatre, they'll all go round the table and say, hi, my name is Bruce. I'm here as the anaesthetist. Hi, my name is... Uh, such and such, I'm the nurse for this. And they'll, they'll introduce themselves. Why? Because it, it seems to give us access. We're more likely to say to the anaesthetist they're making a mistake if we know their name. Remarkable but true. Psychological safety in air cabin crews. In fact, they've had to mandate something which is called crew resource management, CRM. And it's a system of five stages of framing statements so that everyone recognises what's happening. If, if someone starts going through the five stages of saying to the pilot, it appears we're low on fuel, here's the consequence, here's what I propose, and can I get your agreement? Everyone understands that when crew resource management structure is put in place, it's because a low-status person is trying to say something to a high-status person. So I think there's a recognition that psychological safety is critical, and those industries have learned to try and build it into their modus operandi to try and ensure that the the workers are using it. We have been thinking a lot about, always, about fulfillment of work at ThoughtBot and also trying to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how all of ThoughtBotters can have a fulfilling experience because we, you know, have to acknowledge that folks from different walks of life come in with different levels of psychological safety because of basically society and, you know, systems that already exist outside. And I'm curious how ideas around diversity and inclusion are introduced when we think about fulfilling work and the joy of work, or maybe some thought leaders that that you're looking to who are, are talking about this. Yeah, well, I think the critical thing with with regards to diversity is the more you understand the mechanics of diversity, the better informed you are. And so, for example, one of the critical things about diversity is that it often feels uncomfortable. And I've had people say to me, oh, you know, we're really focused on workplace culture in our organization. And in our organization, we run everything on gut instinct because We've got such a visceral understanding of how good culture works. We run things on gut. But in fact, the more that we understand about diversity, we'll know that that's a really bad idea. So I'll give you one illustration. There was a a fantastic piece of work done at Stanford University. I think it was Harvard, actually, and it was it was frat houses. So they deliberately chose frat houses because I think frat houses probably f- for good reason they've got a bad reputation, and so they and and a bad reputation <laughs> right. probably for a lack of diversity. So they did an interesting experiment where they got a group of frat house people and they they set them into little two person teams. So two members of the frat house, and they gave them a murder mystery puzzle to solve. So they were given a a simple but logical puzzle to solve, and they were given uh, ten minutes to first do it after 10 minutes another member of the frat house came into the room and that took them up to about 15 minutes at 15 minutes one of two things happened half of the time another member of the fraternity house came in and half of the time a stranger came in someone who wasn't a member of the frat house 
No, they went to the teams and they said to them at the completion of the 25-minute exercise, they said to them, can you evaluate how much you enjoyed doing it? And it was unequivocal. The people who were in the diverse groups, the, the group where just a, one single stranger came in, reported enjoying it significantly less. They said that their experience was disrupted. It's a shame they had been enjoying it, but you know it hadn't been much fun compared to the completely homogenous frat house group. Then they looked at the results. The results of the teams who'd just been in the uniquely homogenous frat house group, they got the puzzle right 29% of the time. Uh, the groups who'd been who had had the stranger come in, they got the results right 60% of the time. So the results doubled, the effectiveness of the, the results doubled. However, the critical thing to know about that, and I think the reason why it's such an instructive piece of work, is that if you just ask them, did you enjoy it? And, you know, if you optimize things for people's enjoyment, then actually the enjoyment was lower in the mixed group. And I think it's a really critical piece of information for us to understand, because if we have a manager who says, you know, I hire on gut instinct or a hire on, does it feel like a good culture fit? Well, there's a big danger that you're going to be optimizing to reduce diversity. And that might be cultural diversity or, or intellectual diversity or gender diversity, all of those things. You're going to be reducing diversity, but for a reason that the manager will tell you is totally benign. So I think, you know, the more we understand about diversity, the more we can say, okay, just because this feels uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong. Yeah, that's a great example. And it is encouraging, I think, that companies seem to be moving away from the, the culture fit and thinking more about culture ad. I know when I was being trained as like a hiring manager, my manager was telling me, you know, oh, like, think about the beer test. Like, would you want to go get a beer with this person after work? Which is problematic on various <laughs> levels, especially, you know, for white folks. I think it's it's good to have that level of discomfort where, you know, we're being introduced to different points of view and, and different cultures and expanding the organization, really. Absolutely. One organization told me we used to have the van test. You know, would you willingly drive four hours in a van? Because they were like, they, they, when they were getting going, <laughs> they, were, they were all hands to the pump. Would you drive four hours with this person? Well, look, you know, there might be someone with a temperament that's optimized differently than your own, that someone comes from a different part of the world that's more flamboyant. Whatever reason it is, to go to those simple heuristics is not intentionally harmful but has a direct consequence. And I think the more that we understand about these things, the more that we can be empathetic to try and avoid the, the pitfalls of them. One of the things that I've researched and, and found as a way to combat this problem, particularly in the hiring process, is to use rubrics or scorecards where you've clearly articulated what is important for the job and people are asked to use a scorecard that only judges those things. Yeah, That's one thing that I think has been found. I, I recognize that a few people might sit there going, gosh, we're sort of taking all of the spontaneity, all of the the fun out of work. And, and that's very much not the intention, but it's more actually bringing these gentle rigors in can just make work more rewarding for everyone. We um, used to use the word happiness, that we wanted people to be happy at work. And we changed using the word fulfilling because happiness can be very superficial, like you said, it's not always going to be easy. 
these things are going to be difficult. But to be truly fulfilled in our work, you need to be able to bring your whole self to work. You need to work with a team of people that have diverse perspectives to produce great things. And if you don't have those, you can feel happy, but still be unfulfilled. I think you talk about two different kinds of happiness, hedonic and uh, what was the other one? Eudaimonic. Yes. So one is like the things that feel good. And then the other is sort of the things that are truly fulfilling with purpose. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So, you know, one of the strange things is that we definitely get a pop of happiness, of joy from hedonic pleasures, you know, like as we're recording this, you know, I'm already thinking about my plans for this evening and the hedonic pleasure that I'm going to enjoy this evening. But in fact, what you what you find is that those things are immensely fleeting. And critically, there's one interesting thing where uh, there's a really fascinating piece of work of positive psychology. A woman called Alice Eisen did a brilliant piece of work where she went into hospitals and she gave doctors a gift of a bag of candy. And then she gave them some case notes and she observed what happened. Well, the remarkable thing is, and the almost terrifying thing is, but forewarned is forearmed, but she observed that the doctors who'd been given a gift did a much more thorough and complete job when it came to the diagnosis of the patient they observed. Terrifying, but worth knowing. But the remarkable thing is that you can give them the bag of candy once and it has that effect. You give them it again and it doesn't have the same effect. Now, one person described that to me as the smoothie delusion. The idea that by giving workers a smoothie every morning, a sort of perks, benefits, lunch, breakfast, it has a positive uplift in the job they do once, but then becomes a new norm. And so that's a hedonic pleasure. That's like a, a simple hedonic pleasure. It's fleeting, but it doesn't have a long-term effect on our motivations. Eudaimonic pleasure is where we derive meaning, we derive purpose, we derive something bigger from it. And what you tend to find is that people's motivations are more enduring and more stable when they are in a state of eudaimonic pleasure. So I think, you know, that's a critical thing. The more that we can understand the way that those things work. The challenge, I think, is that to some extent, we've seen an appropriation of some of that science. So, you know, if you search for workplace purpose and you search for purpose of your job, you'll get no shortage of people talking about it. And the the issue with that is that people who, like Simon Sinek, who've, who've gone out and talked about the secret of motivation at work, is answering the question, why? Why do I do this job? What is it that motivates me to do this job? And the issue I have with the question why as being the answer to any of our workplace perils is that it doesn't appear to answer the the challenge that we've got, that workplace burnout is at record levels. But it's even higher, workplace burnout is even higher amongst people who have purpose-driven jobs. I was reading something for the US edition of my book, which is saying in in the US that two-thirds of US teachers are in a state where they're considering quitting their job. So it's a purpose-driven career, purpose-driven profession, and yet 
people are still struggling from the same levels of burnout, the same levels of being overwhelmed as those who haven't answered the question why. So that's why I, I sort of I take issue. I, I don't think answering the question why, I don't think purpose yeah. alone is solving things. In fact, the, the book that I put together, it's been a sort of number one business bestseller in the UK. I see this book as answering the question how. How can we work in a more sustainable way? How can we work in a way that makes us more rewarded, more satisfied? satisfied, more happy. And so answering the question how seems to me to be as important as answering the question why. Yeah. So you mentioned you uh, just wrote a book. It just came out, right? The Joy of Work. Yeah, we have a day in January in the UK, which was the creation of some marketeer at some point, which is called Blue Monday. It's labelled as the most miserable, the most depressing day of the year. It's the the third Monday in January. You're a long way away from your paycheck. You're in the midst of the darkest, gloomiest month of the year. And someone styled this Blue Monday. And so my book came out on on Blue Monday in January. I recognised that we, we don't have that day in the US. And so... So uh, the, unofficially, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. So maybe I'll invent In it. Maybe, maybe that's my marketing for when the book comes out. So the book's going to be called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and comes out in February 2020. Gosh, that's a long time away, isn't it? Let's not wish our lives away. Oh, it's right around the corner. Yeah. Uh, how, <laughs> how was that experience of, of writing it? How long did that take you? Yeah, I mean. A script of a book is normally about 60,000 words. And if you break it down into that, I think, you know, a Saturday morning in a very focused state can yield about three or 4,000 words. Normally, because you've been doing the thinking about it during the week and you've been sort of thinking of different things. And then when you sit down, so a lot of people say that they, they don't enjoy the experience of writing, but they enjoy having written. And I can definitely empathize with that. Hmm. In fact, someone said to me, when did you write that book? You know, someone who, who my partner said, uh, when did you write that book? And I tried to not let it intrude. But if you don't watch TV every night, uh, sorry <laughs> if that's a, a bad thing to say, but if you don't watch TV every night, it's remarkable what you can get done. Well, I mean, it definitely seems like it's the culmination of your your life's, your work's passion as well. Yes. Um, so you ha- to certainly have a lot of material to work from, I imagine. Yeah, and for me, very resolutely, I feel that modern work is broken. So I mentioned half four workers now are burnt out. In fact, there's a remarkable thing that since the arrival of email onto our smartphones, the average working day has gone up from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day. And there's one stat that says that amongst American workers who are expected to stay connected to email, the average working week is around 70 hours a week of connectivity. And the the interesting thing for me is that If you look at those of us who spend two hours a day connected to email outside of the office, if we were looking at their stress levels in the way that we measure the signal strength on our phone, half of all those people who check their email for two hours a day are on four bars of stress. So they're on a full signal of stress. (laughs) And I think we've we've engineered modern work. It's no wonder then that we're surrounded with a burnout epidemic. We're surrounded with people who feel overwhelmed with the the expectations upon them. There was a wonderful BuzzFeed article in January talking about the burnout generation. And I think, you know, a lot of us recognize that at times we all exhibit the symptoms of burnout and the symptoms of burnout are emotional exhaustion where 
you know, maybe you're going to bed tired but can't sleep because sort of work is creating this low-level agitation. Or depersonalization is another of the symptoms of burnout. You might find that that person next to you is chewing, is driving you crazy. You don't see them as a, as a full entity and you just wish they'd stop hitting their MacBook keyboards keys so so aggressively we're just annoyed by little things around us and the the final uh, symptom of burnout is lethargy we just don't have the energy to do things and when we do them we just don't enjoy them in the way that we used to enjoy them and so burnout is this thing that's all around us it's starting to pervade so much of modern work and the sad thing is is that most of us are in jobs where the day we got that job offer the day that someone emailed or phoned us to tell us the good news, we were elated. And there's this unfortunate thing that as time progresses, we fall out of love with this job that was our dream job. And I think, you know, for me, answering the question of how we can feel motivated and happy in our jobs again seems to be such a fundamental issue that's presenting itself to everyone in work right now. I think you have a lot of great insights and knowledge that you bring to bear. How have you applied that to your work with your team and with Twitter's not a small company. So how do you have the impact that you have? And have there been times where you've been frustrated by applying what you know to the team that you work with? The critical thing for, for me is that I've really learned that, for example, the science of taking lunch breaks is remarkable. You know, mm -hmm. if you look at school children, school children, if you give them a five minute break every hour during the course of the day, their results go up. Breaks are incredibly re-energizing. Worst times, you'll know this, the worst time to find yourself in court is just before lunch because our judgment is worse. You're more likely right. to be found guilty and your sentence is likely to be longer. So, so breaks have this incredible effect of re-energizing us and, and sort of making us more open-minded in our approach. So breaks are incredibly powerful. However, if you stand at someone's desk and you instruct them to take a break, the science suggests that all of that upside is undermined. And so that's the critical thing that any boss needs to know that telling people they can't access their emails out of work hours is worse than modeling that they shouldn't be spending their time on email outside of work hours. And so the critical thing for me is trying to create a climate where people feel they are permitted to behave in a certain way. You know, I try to model that 40 hours is a long enough work week. I try to model that taking a lunch break is an important part of feeling fresh to do our best job, but I don't instruct them to do it. So, so I think that's been the critical thing and trying to create a climate where people feel the agency and autonomy to work in their own way. That's a really great insight. Like you can't tell people to behave yeah. in that way. Otherwise it's undermined. You just have to model it. Yeah. I mean, I th personally, I think the only thing you can tell people is to stop emailing at the weekend. And let me tell you yeah. from the very most, the most senior person who works here to the, to the most junior, if anyone emails me at the weekend, they, they get what's coming to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's also good relationship advice. I think never tell someone just relax. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Bruce. Thank you for coming on and sharing everything with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled. If anyone's interested, the podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat is on all of the, uh, all of the normal places. Yeah, and the website is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. That's right. 
How can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or follow along with your work? Well, you won't be surprised. I assume to hear it's Twitter, that I'm right? I'm quite active <laughs> on Twitter, but my LinkedIn is a fertile place if you want to stay connected to me and add me to your professional network. I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love chatting to you today. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. You can find me, Lindsay, on Twitter at Lindsay3D. And you can find me, Chad, on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. And thanks again to Pricing Wire for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.